0: Welcome to the Learner.co show, hosted by Kevin Horick and his fellow Learner co-founders. Listen in as groundbreaking leaders discuss what they've learned. Discover the books, podcasts, presentations, courses, research, articles, and lessons that shape their journey. To listen to past episodes and find links to all sources of learning mentioned, visit Learner.co. That's Learner with two L's, dot co. Welcome back to the Learner.co show. Today we have
1: Brooks Brown. I don't even know what title to give him at this point. He's done so many incredible things. So, John and Greg, what are you most interested in uh, learning from Brooks or uh, getting his thoughts on today?
2: Oh, I'm really excited about this one. Um, Brooks is just fascinating. He's worked for uh, LucasArts and in the age i am i was a huge star wars fan uh yeah. he's also worked with uh george uh, or james cameron on on uh, james cameron's production company on avatar and uh and he's worked with some fascinating people he's also he's doing some amazing stuff in gaming too so i'm really interested in this interview and where he sees the future of that going
0: yeah i I'm totally fascinated how someone can have such a cool and fascinating and interesting career arc. um, From, yeah, clearly, I don't know, it it didn't, it it seems almost random, um, but obviously, or maybe it's not, maybe it is. I just want to find out, like, this seems really cool. And one thing is clear when you've, when how he's done these different things, he's, he has to have figured out how to learn what he's doing while he's doing it and get over that fake it till you make it kind of stuff. Uh, So I'm I'm excited to hear that.
1: Very cool. All right. On with the show. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Brooks Brown. He's the CEO of Consortium 9. Brooks, welcome to the show.
3: Well, hello, Kevin. It's been some time.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you again and and have you on this show. Do you maybe want to talk a little bit about where you grew up and then get into your career, because it's really, really fascinating. And then let's talk about some things you've learned along the way.
3: Yeah, so, um, I mean, I, I it definitely has been, I've had a really weird career. It's hard for me to sort of uh, consolidate it into things without also thinking that maybe I'm just in a coma because it's <laughs> you know one thing after another after another that kind of is from my childhood uh, and things coming back on me. It's been wild. Um, you know, I, I started in uh, Colorado, born and raised. Um, very cool. And uh, there's no game developers in Colorado. It's not a thing. Uh, right. There were like two or three. Uh, NetDevil uh, was making an MMO. Uh, there's a couple that did like work for higher stuff for Sony, but very insular small groups. And uh, me without a college degree, I was not top of the list uh, for any of them to take on at all. And it was a pain. And I spent basically, uh, five or six years with my brother who also, uh, he's an audio guy. He wanted to get into games. We have ever since we were little. And, uh, we drove to every games conference from 2002 through 2005, um, wow. lit like drove to Austin games conference, drove to E3, drove to GDC, oh, volunteered wow. at all of them from Denver, which is a fun drive. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I took my resume and I took my my Unreal reel that I burned onto CDs and painstakingly paid someone to to print on, which was a big deal back sure. then. Uh, people laugh now when I talk about it and I sort of do too, but it was, my brother did the same thing, like reel and pamphlet, you walk around, you hand them out, you talk to recruiters and um, and it was a heartbreaking, awful, wonderful, horrifying experience. I had I'd one recruiter flatly say that um, uh, games, isn't meant for me and that I should probably just stop trying, which wow. was awesome. Um, so that was a thing.
1: Especially where, where, like, once we get into it later, like how wrong was that guy? It,
3: it was, uh, uh, it was a lot. And it was a, um, but did that I mean, it,
1: motivate you? Like,
3: no, you must, it, well, no. I mean, it, it broke me for a day or two. Uh, like I like, I literally just put, like, I threw out the rest of my resumes and I went outside oh, wow. and cried as I smoked. Like it was the hardest thing. Cause it years of trying to get in and doing anything you can and it's it's a nightmare. Um sure. to be frank it's just a nightmare. But uh you know my brother ended up getting the first gig between us and he ended up working at uh, electronic arts in Los Angeles. Very cool. And uh the recruiter from there who ended up going to Lucasfilm uh, uh she ended up bringing him up to Lucasfilm and he wow. ended up working at Lucas Arts in the audio department and That was awesome. Um, So he got to like, you know, he got, he was the first of us to like, you know, make it and be able to hit the studio we dreamed of working at LucasArts where we grew up was like the thing. Monkey Island's the reason we wanted to make games. So um, I ended up uh, taking a whole bunch of game writing jobs and website production jobs. Web production was kind of my personal bread and butter building websites for realtors was where I actually cut my teeth and fan sites for bands. I had a fan, yeah. you know, series of fan sites for insane clown posse and a few others. Um, Interesting. Yeah, no, it was a very different far cry. We're talking about 20 plus years ago, which is wild. Um, but uh, I ended up making my way to San Francisco. Uh, uh, a guy I, I sort of ended up getting to know thanks to sort of random online interactions was John Davidson, who is the uh, creator of OneUp.com, um, right. which was a great game review website, and he threw me some game review work. Uh, he started a new company, hired me as a production intern for $11.50 an hour in San Francisco. So I moved all my into a <laughs> four-bedroom apartment, and I got the back room. And I was paying too much for it. And uh, you know, in that time, uh, I ended up building what I could and uh, my writing portfolio. And I ended up finding a way to convince that recruiter at Lucas to hire me into the online group where I joined as a online producer, uh, where wow. I uh, built websites for Star Wars, which was coolest thing ever. And I, <laughs> I, got, and I got to like write articles. My first, my first article I pitched that got picked up um, and it was wild pitching it to Pablo. Uh, Pablo Hidalgo is now on the story team and kind of weirdly leading the franchise, which uh, to look back on is like obviously his dream but at the time like i pitched in this idea of doing a a civil war letters from the front for the battle of hoth um and so it was like a series of letters telling about the battles that were happening on the front lines but in the style of the old oh betty it is frigid here the droids are freezing (laughs) like that kind of thing um that's amazing i got to have so much fun and then uh i sort of fell backwards into being able to make games which was really my passion you know Ever since uh, Unreal came out as an engine on itself, I bought this awful game, I shouldn't say awful, adorable game, uh, Robo Recall, Robo Ball, whatever it was called, not Robo Recall, this was years ago, where it was this, this game of this robot that rolls around a sci-fi world. I don't even know if I cared about the game. It came with Unreal Editor, which was a okay. big deal. And sure. uh, a full version of it that I could learn, and I bought all the books to learn. And then this time I just kept you know practicing and learning how to make levels. And lo and behold, at some point, my boss at Lucas uh, quit. And Lucas is very notorious for not necessarily backfilling as long as someone can do the job. And so I happily took over digital marketing for all of LucasArts. That's amazing. (laughs) Which I was not qualified to do by any stretch of anyone's imagination. (laughs) Um, And ended up building a total of uh, 18 websites for products while I was there. And uh, got a chance to uh, build my first game which was a website for lego star wars i convinced them uh that you know advert gaming was a thing and making games for lego star wars to sell lego star wars was a thing we could do so we built this flash-based mmo and it ended up winning a ton of awards i'm very proud of the team and that was a great
1: game i remember playing
3: those games were amazing and our little website was you know, an in MMO—it's instance-based at uh, 10 to 20 players, multiplayer games, shooting each other. You could unlock all the characters and switch and swap their bodies. Like it was the full game, but in like a 2D MMO flash thing.
1: Like and, that game would be amazing to play now.
3: I oh, it's—it it, they're always—they're always fun. They're eternal. That's the yeah. fun part—is that stuff's always eternal. And uh, I, I won my Webby, and when that happened, uh, the president of Lucas. Um, who Paul Megan, who ended up becoming the president of Epic Games uh, during their meteoric rise, uh, offered me my own games team. And oh, wow. uh, so I got to do that for a year or two before the mouse decided to buy it and cancel the game because that's how that works. Right. And it's fine. Uh, but uh, I kind of, everyone saw this coming and I put my feelers out. And one of the people who reached out to me was uh, James Cameron and his production company. They needed someone to kind of take over um, all of their digital and that's their upcoming games, streaming, social media, all of that. And, you know, I had been part of the team that created social media for Star Wars. I had done all this web stuff and game stuff and, you know, did the first cloud application for Lucasfilm. I did a whole bunch of different stuff and um, they grabbed me, pulled me down to Los Angeles and I spent four years working for James Cameron, which was as... Wonderful and horrifying, and everything as you might expect. Like, all the stories are true in every way, good and <laughs> bad. It's hilarious. Um, as a wonderful, astonishingly wonderful group of people over there, and um, then from there, I ended up uh, getting poached after the you know fifth time that Avatar 2 was pushed back. Uh, I got poached by Starbreeze to run their U.S. operations, which basically was their VR. Uh, stuff and I'd always wanted to work in VR since uh, forever. I was a backer of Oculus, so I was a big fan of VR as a thing. Um, and we launched a ton of stuff from IMAX VR, which I was really excited to be a part of and lead that all the way through to, you know, we did the mummy VR installations. And then my sort of big, my baby that I had sort of grown was this idea that we could do more than just what I called carnival emotions in VR. And this is a lot of what we talked about uh, last time I was on, Kevin, is this idea of pushing towards real emotions and how people can really connect with each other and derive meaning from digital experiences rather than just the feeling of, oh, cool. (laughs) like Because I don't, like carnival emotions to me are boring. And so we built this project called Hero, which debuted at Sundance. um, And we took Sundance by storm, it was amazing. And then we ended up winning Tribeca. Wow, um, that's huge is it's one of those things that you you don't you don't ever expect when you go into games to have tribeca film festival to be a thing you can do like that's right you yeah. assume you've sectioned off that part that that branch of your life there's a brooks in another alternate world maybe that maybe does this but now i'm in <laughs> games that's not a thing i can do and um turned out not to be the case and we won and so i got to be a tribeca war- award-winning director which is wild that's that's um, amazing though. Congrats on that. That's yeah. huge. And and then we want to Lumiere. So this 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 piece here was amazing, and and it was just this an emotional piece. We put you in a corner in Syria, and it's not video. It's full realized Unreal. We built a forty by forty room, wow, uh, with everything built out. The oil barrels. If you reached out, there was an oil barrel there. Things matched. Textures matched. We made the smell and the humidity match uh, everything wow. to make you feel like you were truly there. And uh, it's one of those things that's like, when you can actually get a person to completely forget that they're inside a VR, which we're—I'm proud to say—we generally were able to do. You can do things to them emotionally. <laughs> that that's amazing. I—I I don't know if I regret or not because what the piece does is you—you uh, you see this girl with her dad fixing an engine. You're in a marketplace. There's people all around. And then a helicopter comes by and drops a barrel bomb and it blows everyone up. It blows you up too. It's actually really a traumatic explosion. Okay. And uh, then you have to go through a burning building to lift rubble off of the, the girl girl's arm before she dies. Wow. And uh, with the dad screaming, please help me, please help me. And it's 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 deeply emotional. There's a lot of stuff. And we did this terrible thing at the very end where we had the, you literally physically run over to this big pile of uh, cement and rebar and you lift it. And we have a game trigger that you lift the bar and uh, lo and behold, the girl's free. And you get to see that happen. But we actually had an actress in there whose hand, as you reached in, would reach up and grab yours. Oh, wow. um, And people literally collapsed crying, like could not handle doing it. It was overwhelming. Um, I'm really, it was a lot. And it was emotionally a lot to sort of put together and to go through that. I spent most of Sundance genuinely in tears because it was just, it was too much. Um, And then Tribeca was just uh, flatly overwhelming as well. Um, So I ended up taking some time off to say the least. I left Starbreeze um, and uh, I wanted to just stay home, be a dad. Uh, My son had just been born um, and I just was like, I needed a break. Right. Um, so I spent three years um uh kind of trying to figure out what the hell to do next, uh consulting randomly here and there, uh random VR stuff did a VR project for Oculus that we probably won't see the light of day. Um mm-hmm. and then uh most recently I got into crypto as a thing because I hate crypto, which sounds <laughs> weird, but like I I love the promise of crypto and the technology. Right. I think right. the technology is amazing. But it's a lot like my relationship with VR. I I look at it and I go, oh my God, this tech is amazing. And then I look around and I go, this is what you're doing with it. Like this, this is this. It's this. This is how you've utilized it. Um, you know, we have free to play gaming. This concept of uh, actually having the people who play the most could pay the most and the people who just sort of want to just, you know, anyone can access it, blah, blah. But what we've done with it is, is perverted it into this weird candy crush nightmare where it's about user acquisition and churn until people just get out of the game and then your game fails and that's expected. And it's this really weird, awful place we've gone with it. And I look at VR the same way. It's like, oh, this is all you've done with it. A handful of games are good. And then the rest of it is, is what, um, I, I will avoid some of my more choice words, but with, with <laughs> NFTs and crypto, it's I consider it almost even worse. Um, wow. Interesting. The, well, it's the the nature of it is um the the tech underneath allows for a great deal of meaning because we're able to verify things, know things are accurate, know be able to see the un- underprintings and the workings of it. And the decentralized nature of it means we can actually change how power structures operate in software let alone how the structures around software operate the opposite is what we've done we've consolidated into a handful of marketplaces Uh, mostly it's kind of scammy and garbage and uh it's deeply deeply in the gaming sector pay to win deeply pay to win in in a in a way that it's almost laughable when you start looking into it how how much pay to win it is and so like Like with VR, I kind of stepped back and I went, okay, so what can I do here that's really weird? And um, I started developing what Consortium 9 is, um, and we recently got funded, which is fortunate. We'll be doing a big announcement soon about the whole thing. But playing into um, how can we have games that are flatly free to play, not microtransactions with uh, tons of weird, oh, I, I pay to speed up or I pay to have vanity items. And because of that, you know, there's this really weird social stigma around do you own these items or I'm showing off how much money I have. Can we just remove that and get back to what games kind of are supposed to be, which is play and fun? And is there a way we can do that? Um, I I believe we've we've designed out and figured out a way, but you know that's its own whole discussion. So that's like the short version of my career. Sorry to ramble. I did warn you that I can I can get going.
1: No, I I love it. I, I think it's great. The the one thing I wanna dive a little bit deeper into what we just talked about, but the thing that I love about you is you've had to self-teach yourself throughout this and constantly be learning. And I think you're a huge inspiration for people that that are doing that, but also people that have kind of gone a non-traditional route, right? Like it's a lot of people are like, well, I took this in university, then I ended up here. And then I ended up at these like big name companies and you kind of went a totally different route and worked at multiple companies that a lot of people, like I said earlier, would dream of working at just one of them. And you've worked at many of them and on projects at many of them. So what advice do you give to people that to be that kind of lifelong learner and challenge yourself and pushing yourself forward and kind of being grateful when the success actually starts
3: coming to you? Well, so the the first thing about all of that is, um, as of now, and this was true five or six years ago. Okay. It was less true when I started. Learning is easy. Uh, when I first started, there's a 3D Buzz was basically the only way you could learn to use Unreal. Um, right. And I'm not being like exaggerative. There was no online resources. That wasn't a thing at all. <laughs> um, you you'd have to go to the library uh, or your bookstore and hope they had 3D Buzz as a book. Um, and uh i couldn't afford it because i think it was like 70 bucks or something right. uh which was just an it was a yeah. lot back then uh yeah, for totally. a single book and so i I'd, I'd check it out from the library when i could when i saw it if if, if it came in and i'd sit and i'd do 12-hour sprints of learning this chapter and this and um, now it's um I, one of the sort of things that people don't talk about is um the the number of tutorials that exist online are not just being done by people who are like new to the industry or like anything like that i always had this weird stigma in my brain about oh if i'm doing these tutorials it's because i don't know what i'm doing and it's like no actually everyone's doing them uh, totally incredibly skilled 3d artists who are masters of maya are sitting there and doing uh you know Ducky's tutorials on blender because that they're always, everyone's always wanting to learn. And it's the norm, it is the norm to do these. Always be trying, sit down and just make some stuff. Um, There's a filmmaker I use as personal inspiration, and this is gonna sound weird until I finish it if you've heard of him. His name is Neil Breen. Neil Breen is uh, an extraordinary filmmaker. And uh, feel free to go watch a few YouTube videos. And then out the other side, I will just say, this guy has a very particular vision. He isn't necessarily skilled at what he does, and he has made more movies than any of us. And if he's able to do it, what is your problem? Make a thing, go do a thing. It's gonna suck, but it won't be Neil Breen, so you're fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just make a thing, and it's the only option. When I was running around with my multiplayer CD, my CD with my multiplayer maps on it from Unreal, and my mutations I I had coded and scripted and all that stuff, um, I had this, you know, pit in my stomach that it wasn't super good. And what I didn't realize, and as other recruiters have explained to me, especially then, but definitely now, like the level of skill that is required to get these jobs is not the high bar we think it is. We see the final bit of work that these people put out and these extraordinary things when, you know, the, the final levels in Fortnite, you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. It's like, yes, yeah, it's, a, it's a team of like 150 people at a minimum that are building these, it, they, people understand that when you have your, your thing, when you're building your one man show. So work on it, work on it, slowly learn, do things the right way, figure out what your version of the right way is and get building. It's there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, the other half of it is um I cannot say that I do not also owe just sheer networking. And this is the, the humility of it uh, combined with kind of the confidence and it's the confidence in that i did absolutely put the work in uh on everything i've done I've, right. I've done a great deal and i've worked my ass off but so do a lot of people like I, I, that doesn't make me special the this but it's other
1: what si- it takes though right
3: it's it it, it depends um okay. i would say it it does for me because i care about doing really interesting creative work i don't want just a job i want to do something interesting Right. Um, and for that, yeah, it takes work. You have to be one of the people who can have those conversations even at the beginning, let alone build stuff or consider how to build stuff that might be interesting. Uh, if you're wanting to just work as, uh, not to knock Candy Crush, but if you're wanting to work on something like that, uh, you can get away with, I think, a little bit less effort in order to be picked up by one of their very junior teams. The high-end guys, some of the best in the world. It's one of the sort of fun parts of that. Um, but it's, it, again, I've worked hard. I'm very proud of the work I've done. Um, But if I didn't have the people around me supporting me as I did that, and that's not just personally, I mean, professionally, the, the way that jobs have worked and it's not just me, it's everyone in the industry. It's who, you know, there is no such thing as a clean job application. It's very rare that someone comes in out of nowhere and gets a gig. You have to know someone, they have to go, Oh, I started a company or, Hey, I was talking to my CEO uh, how the Starbreeze job. I was talking to my CEO, and he said, uh, "You know, they need a new creative who's able to work in a bunch of places. Are you happy on Avatar?" That conversation, as a thing, wouldn't happen without having that network, without having those people who are able to support each other, and then my job to then pay it forward. Um, I'll give an example of uh, that, which when when I was at Lucas. I knew my opportunity when I had my own games team was to bring in people who needed that break the same way John Davison gave me my first or uh, uh, Chris Bigelow gave me my first and got me in the door at Lucas. Um, so I got a really good friend of mine now. Uh, he was a guy named Josh Kalinski, who I believed was going to be an amazing designer. Okay. Uh, he was part of what was called the Conference Association. Uh, the conference associates, we are the guys at GDC who walk around with the shirts and say, do you need help? Uh, Volunteers. Did you volunteer in order to just get in the door and network? And Josh had done this a lot. And I really liked him and I thought he was really bright. So I hired him as a designer. Um, Currently he's on destiny 2, and he's leading their economy design. So it turns out it was a decent pick. And I was talking to him and he's like, you know, I'm hiring He's like, this is my chance to pay it forward. I'm finding CAs and people who need that too. And it's like, when you can actually be in that position to continue to bring new people in, to support people who don't have that network, to give them that first leg up, to be that first connection, that's to me how you're able to pay that forward and keep it going. And it keeps you personally in a place of a bit more humility, because you understand that there's a bit of there, but for the grace of God, go I. In uh, every job you get.
1: No, I think that's actually really good advice, and it is cool for you to mention that, like just the paying it forward, because everybody got a break at some point, and if you can be that break for somebody else that you legitimately believe in, I, I do think that's pretty cool that that you and other people are, are still doing that, especially at these big companies,
3: right? Everyone is like, it's it, gaming gets a lot of bad rep, and it generally deserves it. Um, I'm not going to say that it's not a bunch of there are a lot of, there's uh, my joke about the Me Too movement. Someone asked me, I was on some other thing and someone asked me why Me Too hasn't struck gaming as hard as it did film. I'm like, because we're, the gaming industry is so terrible to women that they just don't join. Like it's it's I so do. much worse. Uh, and I, I believe that still. I think there are companies that are working against it, but it's, it's genuinely a, a painful place. And it's not just for women, it's for everybody. It's a weird space. And um, the best thing we can do is to always try to push to have new blood come in, new people to help us, new ideas and new values, because that's how you find the next thing that will make you successful. Um, no one ever made a breakout blockbuster hit by doing the same shit everyone else did.
1: Yeah, fair. No, that's good advice. Interesting. So that actually is a good segue into it seems like you're obviously still doing stuff in tech and graphics and visual, whatever there's a number of ways we could call it, but you seem to want to almost challenge yourself and reinvent what you're doing in that space. So how has that kind of made your career and, and actually motivated you to do what you're currently about to kind of announce to everybody, not on this show. I mean, in the future.
3: Yeah, it's, when I was trying to figure out if I was leaving avatar because that was not an easy decision. Uh, I, sure. when I, because you're leaving what could be and probably will be the largest film series ever, um, right. with some of the most creative, probably the most interestingly creative people I've ever worked with and smart business people, uh, uh, Kathy Franklin, who's the head of franchise over there is ridiculous. Uh, I don't know if I've ever worked for someone better. Um, her boss, uh, sort of also my boss, John Landau, who's the producer of the films, uh, like there's a personality type he's got and just being around him, you're able to absorb information. Like it's an insane group. So when I'm like, but I was not, I was not happy because I was never going to be able to put a movie out. Um, and so a friend of mine, I was talking with him and he said, wherever you end up, uh, just make sure it's a place where no one knows what they're doing, because the only way you're ever happy is if you're solving problems.
0: Interesting. And it was a it's really weird way
3: of phrasing it to me, but really good advice because it's just accurate. Um, it's less that I really enjoy, uh, you know, this type of game making or this platform or technology. It's the space when something is new where you're able to actually carve out how the language of a thing can be made. Um, you know, it, early days of, Free-to-play gaming, the people who were at the the forefront of that and pushed it and were most successful, literally shaped all the mechanisms for the rest of everything. There were other mechanisms. Free-to-play gaming doesn't have to just be the timers that we've got or these weird vanity items, but that's what we got because that was what was successful. These are the people who won that battle and that sort of cliche became the standard. This happens with everything, with VR uh, especially. And so it's one of those things that, that space is to me the most interesting. And wherever I've been, that's kind of where I've most enjoyed my time. Uh, And so it's finding ways to find uh, technology married to very specific stuff. Now, none of this is stuff I would have realized more than three or four years ago. Um, Okay,
0: why do you say that?
3: Oh, because I didn't have the experience. Um, Interesting. Someone said to me a long time ago, if you know what you're meant to do before you're 35, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> that's actually good advice. It's, it's pretty good advice. And I think it's, it definitely was true for me. Um, I thought all I wanted to do was be a creative director of a game, like okay. uh, a single game, control it and run with it. And I was brutal trying to aim for that job as hard as I could. And, um, as soon as I started, you know, not having it come to life and it was this really thing and I was killing myself to get there and I was depressed and it was awful and i kind of just took a step or two back and i went well what do i really like and sort of allowing myself to find new spaces and what those things might be um i was more able to find that no what i enjoy is is helping figure out how new technology can tell stories how we can find meaning within experiences and it's a little nebulous and tough but it's uh, it's been able to help me carve out my niche and everyone has their own it doesn't have to be this one it's everyone's got their own and uh, the only way to get there is to try and fail. And I've failed so very much. like i've I've everything I'm saying that I've done that's cool. oh, it is cool. I'm not gonna lie. but I'm leaving out like all of the stuff that sucked. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff that really, really, really sucked. And um, uh, it's it's a tough road. Um, but it's, you know, if there's a reason we get into the things we do. Uh, sure. can't help it.
1: No, I, I think that's actually really good advice in itself, right? I think people forget, or at least in my experience, when you talk to people, it's they think that like, once somebody's successful, they're always successful. And it doesn't matter if you've done the biggest thing on the planet, you still will fail. And especially if you've done some of the biggest stuff, because it's harder to always reach that pinnacle, right? Or what's your thoughts around that?
3: Yeah, I'd, I'd say, um. One of the things success does uh, when you have it is you immediately kind of get stuck at that level of the stratosphere. Right. And you think that you need to belong there or that's where you have to be or that it's a thing and you don't realize that success is hyper contingent and genealogical. And at some point it's naturally going to peter out and you've got to do the next thing if you want to. Um, getting stuck in that space is very damaging, <laughs>
2: I'll say. And,
3: and it's tough. Uh, it's tough to get out of the, the reality around any of it is, um, and I make this joke when I go through hiring now that I will take, uh, someone who's actually failed to launch a product or launch product over someone who's never launched anything, uh, or someone who's, or someone who's launched something that was easy. Um, right. Because there's, there's a, I won't hire anyone who's never been on a failed game team because the the first thing that happens to people is they burn out when they fail in games because they kill themselves for something and they don't realize that that is a possibility and then they fall out. Film, this happens a ton. People have one hit and then they have a second that flops and then they can't mentally handle it and they drop out. The Games is way worse, uh, the burn, uh, because it's it's a much more abusive, hard line, compartmentalized group effort than film, I, I think people feel things a lot stronger. But someone who's been through that cycle, who's failed and who's felt the pain and still gotten back up, uh, I'll take them on my team any day of the week.
1: No, that's actually really good advice. So I'm curious though, do you, or have you like read a bunch of books that you'd recommend? Or it seems like you've learned a lot by kind of trial and error, or maybe you're reading something to actually execute like a tutorial or something. Or how have you kind of learned throughout your career?
3: Um, uh, it's It's been literally just finding information and devouring as fast as I can. Right now, okay. I would just say YouTube is is one of the best things when it comes to just flat tutorials. Um, I mean, there's a lot of tutorial sites that you can buy them on, and there's a right. lot of free ones that are great. Again, if you're wanting to get into using Unreal, it could not be more simple. And Epic has launched uh, the Unreal Learning Portal, which I've been sort of using and going back over and it's just to see how it's built and how they put it together and it's great. They've got a gamified sort of learning system that really does do an excellent job of teaching you how to use it in a way that inside of a few months you could be up and running and building something and maybe even sooner than that. Um, outside of that, the, the other part that's really important is it's, uh, especially in design, which is uh, where I tend to fancy myself as being part of, It's deeply important that you have a well-rounded set of education. Um, There's a reason that a lot of people I know in who in the design world that didn't go to school for video game design. It's become a thing more and more recently, but you know some of the top people their things are they have a bachelor's or master's in architecture or philosophy or uh, art history or whatever it may be, and those things are what give them the lens that enables them to create something that's unusual because they have something outside of the space. Instead of just repeating, this is how games are made, they're coming to games with ideas about how games could be made. Um, that changes how that's done. And I've for me, it's it's been a combination of sort of, uh, critical theory is has is been a hobby of mine for a very long time. Um, uh, the writers, uh, Deleuze, Guattari, Simon Dunn, uh, Bataille, um, they've been uh, a thing I've loved for a very long time. Um, and that sort of secondary side where I'm able to dive into that, think about what makes games meaningful or what meaning actually is or how it works upon us and how sensations are generated through our core interactions, how I as my subject are actually produced through my interactions within the game and my desires as such are produced. So then the loot loops can be designed in very particular. Like These are discussions that I like to have and this rounded side of things means I'm not just talking about all the games that are out there. It's good to have that knowledge, and I've played a ton of games, but to be able to have the rest of it allows you to make something that's a little bit beyond what everyone else is doing.
1: Interesting. I, I think that's actually really good advice. So I want to dive a little bit deeper into what you're building now. So do you want to talk about it without kind of, Whatever you yeah, can no. talk about.
3: Yeah, no. So look, the, I, I look at the world of, of, of NFTs and I look at the world of crypto and I look at the world of gaming in general and I see we've kind of hardened ourselves into, we'll say, a handful of very specific cliches. And if we look okay. back over time, one of the things, the thing that has shaped the way games are designed is literally how we capitalize on them as an investment. The only way that we've designed this way. So... Games first hit, they're in the arcades. Uh, they were just free. Just fun little table games. Uh, the first place we started was actually Pong. Um, uh, right. This yep. this this original game that people didn't even buy, the first games we programmed, it was basically tennis. We were trying to build that and replicate a sport. It was this first place we started and they loved it. They had fun with it, so they built more. It ended up becoming a thing they could then capitalize and sell. And there was a lot of ways they did. I have uh, the original Sears Pong, uh, system from long amazing. ago I have one on my shelf um Does it but... still work oh yeah oh yeah well That's I mean you, you need a TV for it to Shh. twist its things onto onto the antenna right thing um <laughs> uh, which I don't actually have anymore but it's it it I hope it still works um but the 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 thing that switched is when we went to the arcades you couldn't have uh people just play for free I mean that was that was not we, was a quarter. It'd pay yeah. pay money. And so as such game design followed this push and we started doing this thing where it was you know a handful of uh quarters uh would give you a handful of lives and at some point you'd die and you'd lose forever there was no more continues didn't matter how many quarters you have because what they wanted is they wanted that you to move on and the next person to start they wanted people to constantly pump quarters and the arcade machines got very adept at doing this. Uh if you go to arcades now they are essentially uh, gambling machines trying to take as much money as they can. The The classic arcade of, that I grew up with in the 80s and 90s doesn't really exist anymore in the same way. And so that shift changed. Well, then at some point we had the home market. The home market, uh, it became this, oh, well, we have a $30 game, $50 game, $60 games. But the way that we set up was in comparison to the quarters, they needed to be built differently. They started doing the same thing. Uh, we got three lives and if you survive, you can continue and then you die, which is the quarters model. Didn't work for home markets. So they started switching it up into being longer games, larger amounts of content. Uh, you go back to like uh, old, old games on the Nintendo, these these Final Fantasy, which is an insane concept to have this huge game, but incredibly good seller. It turns out it wasn't the Final Fantasy, uh, they've done quite well with the series, but sure. uh, the switch to the fifty-dollar model meant that you needed to have tons of content in there, and that has kind of gone to its logical conclusion, where now we have games. Uh, you know, something like I make the joke: Skyrim comes out, and it has a hundred plus hours of content, and people aren't satisfied with it for fifty dollars. <laughs> like the 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 shift is huge. So at some point, we also end up having free to play pop up. And free-to-play is a very specific monetization. It's uh, free, but basically we charge you for little bits of the game. And there was a lot of ways that could go. Where it has landed is speeding the game up and vanity items, um, essentially. Um, And... Because of that, the way that these games now operate, it's not about even content in the same way. Well, you have a Last of Us that is massive and exceptionally expensive with amazingly talented people working on it to make these ridiculously brilliant storylines and single story arcs. It's the opposite. Now you have Genshin Impact, which is as much content as they can shove in to get you to pump in more money. Closer to quarters, but not quite enough. And so they're pushing in this, this other direction. All of these things are following the capitalization of the player. And all of it changes how we play, because I go back to this core idea that play as a thing is actually what people want. Uh, my son wants it, uh, he's four, we go outside, we kick a soccer ball, we, we, we do all kinds of stuff. We have all of these different things happening. And if we were to step back and look at how gamers are being sort of used and utilized, we don't really play anymore. If you look at sports, look at uh, FIFA, um how do they monetize players they don't like they literally don't it's literally the only person actually who's not monetized and again fifa who are if you're if you're a soccer fan or football wherever you happen to be in the world um if i were to say fifa decided not to monetize something the first question out of anyone's mind is why like (laughs) jesus of all the people they've decided and it's like they've decided that Now they could make an absolute metric ton of money, but they made choices not to allow Messi to have golden shoes, for example, or uh, slightly faster or better clothing. All the clothing is regulated. It's all the same size. Shoes are the same. You can't wear all these different things and it's not just soccer. This is every sport. This is how sports work because what matters is the player. It's the only group of people who aren't monetized. Now they make money outside of the game, everywhere. players do everyone does like these games i won't say fifa doesn't make money they do just fine but <laughs> but my question would be why are we monetizing players in our sports and it's because we started down this road of the only way to monetize our games is to do that and we've gotten stuck in that so my question would be is there a way to do it without having the player be the thing we monetize and i believe that there is a way got you no it, that's that's actually quite fascinating
1: because you're right, and I'm I'm really curious now to check out uh, what you guys are building when it's ready. The the other thing that I'm curious to get your thoughts on then, is it seems to me I used to game a lot as a kid and even into my, you know, early mid kind of late twenties, and I find like just now that life's gotten so busy, like just trying to play casually sometimes is so challenging because I don't remember you know, the million combo buttons and, and whatnot. Like am, what is your thoughts around that? Do you think oh, no, you're, kind of-
3: you're spot on. Well it's 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 the same problem because again right. so I just recently uh, played through three quarters of uh of Metroid dread, which is okay. amazing. And I love Metroid and I love these games. But I'm also a dad. I've got all this stuff. So I took a little bit of a break and I go back and the controls and abilities are incredibly complex. Uh, right. I have to hold this button to do this while doing this other thing. And then this other button does a thing. Also, uh, the controls aren't exactly particularly great, to be perfectly honest. Okay. Um, so it's a really weird mix. but. That has to be the case because the only way that someone feels their $60 purchase is worthwhile is if by the end of it, they feel they have personally grown in skill and ability and experience. Uh, interesting. And so you have to build in a certain level of that for a person to justify this purchase. Now, depending on how long that game is, you can make it insanely long curves. I, My favorite uh, sort of example of this would be World of Warcraft. I went back sure. recently to play Warcraft after like a seven-year hiatus, okay. um, uh, don't do that. I'd be so lost. It doesn't work because you're, you're talking about a 15 years of people learning things and having the game shift over time and adjusting and, and practicing and skills continually being built up and growing that someone's starting from scratch or someone who quits partway through, I can't pick that back up. I I, I have to effectively start from zero. And it's, it's necessary because it's it's how you keep people believing that they're continually moving forward. It's how they stay on the treadmill, uh, which you call it that because people feel like they're moving forward when they're not. Um, the, the, the way we can do it instead is just allow people to play as they do. There's no need to have a sort of churn towards skill, have people develop the skills they want because let people play as much as they want. What, what are the reasons stopping this? What's well, the financial reasons? It's the only it's the only thing there. There's a lot of really amazing games that are flatly free that are out there, or indie developers who would adore uh, letting people play their game for free if they didn't have to you know they have to pay for rent and i I want to have enough money to make my next game. I right. I'm not alone in that. I, most indie devs would be very happy to sort of live like that. But what if what if we could change how it's financialized? What if it's not the players? And again, it's it's keep pushing back to this thing where the play coming first, the player coming first. How do we think through that? And it, hilariously, I've, I've gone down the road on that with crypto and NFTs because they feel like and they have been used in the same way that we've done everything else. People have come to crypto or people in crypto have been building games based on the very same uh, cliches and standards and that we've been subjected to in gaming but they're adding this extra layer to it which just kind of makes it even more insidious the idea of having to pay four or five hundred dollars to even play a game and then how do you even know what you like those are your items and your cards like magic the gathering i think my favorite everyone talks about that oh it's just like magic because you have to buy cards i'm like i've seen guys in magic tournaments walk in and buy a brand new deck like unopened and just sit down and play with that and dominate. Like, so it's, a, it's, a, it's different. Um, it's it's designing for play. And I think there's a lot of people wanting to do that. And I think there's a ways to do it because crypto does a lot of really unique things at a purely technical base level that people haven't really jumped on yet. Not a lot, at least.
1: Do you think part of the reason that hasn't happened in the crypto NFT kind of space is because it's been a lot of kind of technical developers doing a lot of development and we haven't had as many creative people like yourself actually come up with new ideas and bring new kind of creative ideas to that or or what do you why do you think it's been kind of how it's gone so far
3: I I tend to think that it's because there's not a lot of people who fill a weird role, which is someone who's part engineer, part designer, or at least right. has the ability to have a technical conversation. Um, NFTs as a thing, anyone who says NFTs are images is, is lying. They may not know it, but they are. Right. Uh, NFTs are just database entries. Now, the database is distributed, which is very cool, but there's no such thing as an as an image on the blockchain i'm not buying an image i'm not buying that the nft is an entry that points to that item on a centralized server somewhere um so the the reality of how these things work from a design perspective don't get talked about properly because at a base level they're not talking about them properly once you actually get into that group where they're actually oh this is actually how it functions here's how this thing actually works from a bits and 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 bites uh, uh, perspective, that changes how you handle a lot of it. So again, you have the hyper-technical people who generally grasp it, but they have to utilize metaphors in order to even describe it to mostly business and marketing people who then go, oh, that sounds great, and they dive forward. Um, Games has been fortunate because games being its weird technical slash art form, People who have to build levels, myself, this is one of the fortunate things, I come from a, a coding background, a web and, and server coding on the web stuff. Right. I Diving in and doing JavaScript isn't a big deal to me. So happens with crypto, that's kind of the, you know, it's it's not exactly a far cry. If you know some JavaScript, you can generally do Fair just enough. fine in a lot of this. Um, but because of that, you can start having more interesting conversations. And um, I would say that, Plus the fact that it is absolutely um, mar marred with get rich quick schemes, and yeah, and it it is difficult not to see that and go, well, I'll aim right at that and I'll make a million dollars. Like I, people do that. Um, there's a lot of people who just don't and are happy to do that, and it's really frustrating.
1: Sure, but it doesn't sound like you're
3: motivated by money at all. Sure, it comes, but no, no, uh, you can definitely say not. <laughs> um, um, I definitely say that's not not my first thing, especially with this, this is a, it's a unique opportunity. And if it Just turns out to be a real thing and I, if we can change and invent a new form of monetization for games, I think there's a lot of power there. Um, you know, the the other direction that crypto gaming can go, because again, it's like free to play, it's like all of these, there's a lot of voices. Um, the play to earn category, which is close, to kind of what I'm talking about. It's not really, uh, it has games that uh, you can earn money through play. Now, it's it's not earn money through play like an e-sport or like a sport, but instead through tapping the right things like an idle game, you can over time generate uh, capital that then partially gets split off and sent to you. This is not play to me and uh, idle games are not play. Uh, right. I don't believe at all. A cookie clicker is a joke that's gotten out of hand. Um, and the painful part for me is when I see people talking about play to earn as if these games would have anyone playing them if they didn't pay out a meager living, uh, subsistence right. living. Um, if if everyone what's was what the joke I made if if tomorrow we actually had an actual universal basic income and everyone got five thousand dollars a month, would anyone play any of these games the answer is no like just flatly no
1: yeah that's interesting that's totally fascinating and so the question
3: the question is like how can we make things where people actually want to play them and where you know like sports like like the ways we know actually money can be generated in this world can we do that without being hyper exploitative and i think there's ways
1: yeah no that's 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 fascinating i'm curious as we're kind of coming to the end how do you stay creative on what motivates you and how do you feed that creativity?
3: Um, for, for me, it's, it's reading and writing about things that don't matter to anyone else. Um, which sounds yeah. weird. Uh, yeah, what do you mean by that? So I, I run uh, the world's largest Deleuze reading group. Uh, Gilles Deleuze is a, a critical theory philosopher. He wrote uh, with Felix Guattari, uh, the capitalism and schizophrenia duology of anti-Oedipus and a thousand plateaus. He's a prolific author as well. Um, I run the largest reading group for them and okay. my, my free time, uh, my hobby time is kind of spent doing readings of their books as well as writing my own about subjects that yeah, are, we'll just say, uh, up because I don't really care. Like the whole point is to do something that I truly love that lets my passions, you know, play around and get running. And what I've found continuously is when I allow that to happen. And it can happen via this. Sometimes it happens in the right games if I'm playing the right kind of game. For a while, Minecraft was this for me, actually. Um I find uh, my brain kind of gets to hit a Zen place. And as it as it gets there, I'm able to think and, and sort of rebirth that creative energy and allow it to get started again. And it's been very useful for me to do that. Um, I would also say, uh, as the boring stuff is, and eating healthier helps a great sure. deal. Yep. Uh, working out helps a great deal. Um, not a lot, just doing enough. Yeah. Having that baseline of taking care of yourself um, gives you a, a different way of handling your own energies. I think that allows you to be more positive with how they're put out into the world for sure.
1: No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Do you meditate then too? I do. Okay. How have you found that to go?
3: Wonderfully. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, my old joke is if uh, someone demanded that I be religious, I'd say I'm a Taoist. Um, Okay. The, to me, it's, it's that it's Bikram yoga, um, which I was doing prior to COVID very difficult during COVID to do Bikram yoga, nor do I want to. Um, (laughs) But it's uh, anytime you can kind of allow yourself to be doing nothing. Um, John Landau, uh, who's, you know, in, incredibly in demand as a human being, he was producer of Titanic and Avatar and all the new Avatar films and Battle Angel and a whole bunch of different things. Uh, he actually reveled in international flights, and uh-huh. because you didn't have internet on it, and when internet came to international flights, he was actually kind of upset about it
2: <laughs> because it was
3: it was the only time where right. he had he had an excuse to not talk to anybody and to have his own time entirely and i think we take for granted the idea that we can at any time cut things off and that includes reddit that includes twitter these things that ultimately just suck our energies away and ruin our days and allow ourselves to do something that's truly meaningless and for me i call my readings that they don't produce anything they're not i'm not making money off of them i'm not going to ever sell my books i don't even know if anyone's ever going to read them um I'm not, I'm doing random art. I'm doing garbage that will never, ever make me a dollar, nor do I. It is actual meaningless work. And in those times, that's where I find my ability to sort of recharge is the best. And it's where I really encourage people to be. Meditation is a meaningless activity. If you're doing meditation so you can be more calm, you're not doing it. Like that's, that's not how that works. So. It's, again, getting and allowing yourself to be based in that as a thing. It could be great.
1: No, I I think that's actually really good advice, but we're out of time. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and any other links you want to mention?
3: Yeah, uh, the the easiest thing is if uh, you're wanting to learn more about uh, Deleuze and Gwadry, you can search the Deleuze and Gwadry Quarantine Collective or on YouTube and Twitter and everything else. Otherwise, I've deleted all my social media and I have no interest in anyone following me anywhere.
1: Interesting. Okay, no, that's that's interesting. Great, man. Well, I really appreciate you again taking the time to chat with me and have a good rest of your day and I look forward to keeping in touch with you.
3: Well, this is always great. We'll have to do it again soon.
2: Sounds
1: good. Thanks. All right. Well, John and Greg, what did you guys think of that?
2: Well, that was great. <laughs> that was awesome. a that was a really in, that was a really great interview, Kevin. Um you didn't really have to do much work today, <laughs> which is awesome. <laughs> That's very <laughs> and, true. Uh, and uh, and it's always great when uh when we have somebody who who can who who we can learn so much from. Um one thing he's 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 obviously a lifelong learner. He yeah. um He's always trying to, to, to learn what's cu- coming up and, and what you can do to, to get ahead of that or, or to, to use those tools. And I'm really interested in, in what, uh, what he has coming up.
0: Yeah, totally. I, I gotta say, I am excited because, or just, I, I feel affirmed, I feel more confident in myself when he talked about tutorials and how people uh, who are super skilled, highly skilled people are they're doing tutorials because I also feel like a loser when I'm doing a tutorial <laughs> so um, so I, I, I really appreciate him uh, you know helping me get over that. And I think I want to start sharing more of the tutorials that I've done on Learner too, because that's really cool. I, I love it
2: yeah i'm also I was also fascinated by his views on on NFTs because uh, yeah. you know I I'm, I'm trying to figure out how, how those are going to be used going forward and all the ways that uh, that people will will innovate with those yeah. um, so uh, I I was really interested in that part of the conversation